AMC Networks presents Better Call Saul, created by Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, which follows lawyer Jimmy McGill on his path to become Breaking Bad's Saul Goodman, now nominated for seven Primetime Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Drama Series, Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series, Bob Odenkirk, and Outstanding Actress in a Drama Series, Ray Seahorn. Episodes are available at amcfyc.com. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot for The Ankler. We were shooting a pilot a few years ago, and one of the actresses was, for some reason, during a scene, wearing a strange-looking headscarf. At some point, I guess, one of us had approved it, but on shoot night, it looked really odd. And it wasn't until we had three scenes shot that someone from the network mentioned it. We feel the headscarf is a little weird, was the message delivered in concerned tones, but we'd already shot three scenes with it, so, you know, it's going to be in the show. Doesn't it seem weird to you, was the next question, to which the honest answer was, yeah, it really does. But you don't say, yeah, it does, after you've shot three scenes with it. You say, no, it looks great, because the rule is, if we shot it, we love it. We have a lot of rules in the TV business. For instance, there's a rule in comedy that we call the rule of three. If something happens three times, something explodes, somebody gets hit in the face, someone has to say something embarrassing or emotionally painful, and it happens three times in a row, then it's funny. It's probably not funny the first time. In fact, it's usually a lame joke or a silly pratfall. And the second time, it's even a bit tired. But by the third time, well, that's part of the joke. Can't you believe we're doing this again? It's intentional, so it's funny. There's also the faster, funnier rule, which is that the solution almost always to almost everything is faster, funnier. Say it faster, do it faster, and it'll be funny. You'd be surprised how many scenes have been saved by simply asking the actors to do it again with no pauses. Now, a corollary to the faster, funnier rule is the louder, quieter rule, which is basically exactly like the faster, funnier rule, except for volume. Sometimes the only difference between a line that works and one that dies is a dollop of inappropriate loudness. So those are the basic tricks. If a line or speech isn't funny, have the actor do it faster. If it still isn't funny, have him do it louder. If that doesn't work, have him do it softer. If that doesn't work, have him say it three times. If that doesn't work, have him do it three times faster or three times louder or three times softer. Get the idea? Only as a last possible resort, after you've exhausted all of the tricks, only then try to come up with a new line. The point of show business, an old and rich writer once told me, isn't to earn the money. Of course, all of these rules directly contradict the pitch-at-once rule, which states that in any comedy writer's rewrite session, if you pitch a joke and it doesn't get a laugh, do not pitch it again. Pitch it once, not twice, and certainly not three times, no matter what the rule of three says. And definitely not louder. Look, if you pitch a joke and it doesn't get a laugh, it's not because no one heard you. It's because it isn't funny. Pitch something new. The quickest way to get fired off of a writing staff is to keep pitching your material after it's been rejected. The quickest way to be the hero of a writing staff is to figure out that if the actor just says the line faster or louder or on one leg, it'll work, saving the writers from having to do the thing they hate the most, which is writing. Standing there on that soundstage, though, talking about an odd-looking headscarf, we deflected the network's concerns with a cheerful, Are you kidding? The headscarf looks great. It's quirky. And, and, and charactery and, and very, very likable. And we had him too, until one of the other writers unthinkingly blurted out, eh, it does look a little weird and off-putting. He forgot. If we shot it, we love it. Faster, funnier, louder, softer, pitch it once, do it three times, and never agree with the network. Those are the rules. Now, if we shot it, 
We Love It is not apparently a rule being followed by the newly organized, newly money-conscious Warner Brothers Discovery Studio, which last week decided that though they had shot a movie called Batgirl, they did not have to love it. Test audiences didn't love it either, according to the studio. A movie made with a certain amount of fanfare and a lot of enthusiasm when it was all done and cut and put together seems so unpromising that the studio executives did some unhappy math. A movie, even one that people love, is an expensive thing to release. It's usually about double the amount it costs to make when you add in promotions and teasers and ads and billboards and press tours. But a movie that people don't love, or at least a movie that certain test audiences and certain places during the market research phase of the project, did not love, it's not worth the risk. Don't sink money into losers is the logic, and it's probably the right logic if you believe in the science of focus groups. Well, anyway, a few years ago, we shot a pilot for a network that didn't want it. They were cornered by something called a pilot commitment, which means essentially that at some point someone at the network agreed to pay a huge penalty, something pretty close to the cost of producing a pilot, if they didn't produce the pilot. So Faced with a prospect of paying $1 million two for a something and $1 million two for nothing, they thought, all right, what the heck, make it. But we hate it. I mean, but make it, even though we hate it. So we made it. And unfortunately, it tested really well. The shoot night audience, the initial focus group audience, the larger cable test audience, all of them liked the show. They liked the characters. They wanted more. And everybody was really embarrassed about that because the network still hated it. But now they sort of had to order the show and schedule it, because if there's one thing that was true then about network television and is true now about all of show business and will be true probably forever, it's this. Everyone here believes passionately in their ability to pick hit shows through market research. A show that tests well is a hit show. A show that doesn't isn't, which is why every year television networks and movies manage to put so many hit shows on the air and avoid putting on any flops. Through the science of audience research, they have perfected the process of making audiences happy. Well, anyway, the time slot they gave us was arguably the worst one in network television. A comedy hadn't succeeded on that day, at that time, at that network for over 20 years. Our lead-in was a reality kids game show, and our lead-out was, I forget, a news magazine, something. We were doomed, in other words, and we knew it, and they knew it, and they knew that we knew it. So the wind was out of our sails before we even had sails up. I asked our studio president to explain this. Why, I asked, was the studio willing to deficit finance a show to the tune of about a million dollars an episode if it knew, I mean, we all knew, that the network hates it? They've given it a death slot. And that short of some kind of bizarre miracle, we'd be off by November. 13 episodes shot and paid for. That's 13 million studio dollars gone. And only nine or so aired. Why not just call it a day? Refuse the order. Move on. Because, he said, after saying a lot of other things that weren't convincing, after trying to persuade me that there was a scenario in which the show might make it, and after pausing for a few moments and staring out of the window, he said, because in your contract, you get a bonus for every show you make that goes to a second season. And I love this show. I believe in this show. And I think that, yes, miracles do happen. A good show can pop in any time slot. And I don't want to preempt the possibility that this show is going to pop big and become a monster hit. You know why we're going to accept the order? Because I believe in you. And I want you to get that second season bonus. And he added, you never really know. A big-time Hollywood producer once told me that the hardest part of making a picture, harder than lining up the money and assembling the cast, harder than late-night shoots and expensive weather delays, are the days just after the film is released. Because there's nothing left to do. 
as my producer friend put it, but have a slow motion panic attack until the box office numbers come in. It helps, of course, to have made a decent movie in the first place, but that, as moviegoers and movie makers alike will tell you, isn't always what brings people into the movie theater. A case study. A few years ago, while most of the world's population was lining up for another Star Wars movie, there was another movie that did pretty well, too. Alvin and the Chipmunks' The Road Chip was a continuation of the series about three chipmunks and their adventures, and it, you know it's a pointless exercise to call the movies good or bad. They're just... You know, the movie's about chipmunks. And for some reason, despite the blanketing media coverage of a Star Wars movie, which opened the same weekend, the movie about the chipmunks did pretty well. It's the fifth chipmunk movie, so it was off from the box office of most of its previous installments. But when you add that to the competition, it's a pretty successful movie. The marketing strategy, though, seemed to have been something along the lines of, let's not spend any money and see what happens, which could only have caused the producers of the project a series of minor strokes, but advertising's expensive. Studios have to make a complicated calculation. Is the movie promising enough to gamble a big advertising budget on? Or is it a case of throwing away money on a lackluster picture that's never really going to go anywhere? Note here that no one is asking if the movie is good or bad. That, as any moviegoer will tell you, rarely seems to factor into the movie studio decisions of any kind. What they're trying to divine is roughly what the producers are also fretting over. Will anybody hear about this movie and then be inspired to drive over, I guess, to the theater, park, hand over cold cash and sit through the thing? And then later, will they watch it on whatever streamer it's on? In other words, what if you just put Batgirl into theaters? Didn't do all the extra stuff, the tours and the ads and the expense. I mean, the studio behind the Chipmunks knew that the entire media universe was going to be obsessed with everything Star Wars, so they gambled that there would be enough theater traffic that some folks would surrender entirely and take their kids to see the Chipmunks movie. Formula One drivers might recognize this as a slipstream strategy. Use the speed and velocity of the driver in front of you to kind of pull yourself along discreetly behind. As it turns out, it was the right call for a Chipmunk, but I don't know, maybe also for a Batgirl? I don't know. I'm not a studio. But what I do know is, I don't know. Because you never know. I do know, though, that the show I made for the network that hated it did, in fact, last only 13 weeks, and it foundered and suffered in each of its airings. So I never got that second season bonus. It was a few years ago, as I said, and before I learned that under the terms of his contract with the studio, the studio president also got a bonus— But his was for every pilot he sold to series, not to a second season, not even to a completed first season, just to the series. So he got his bonus. I didn't. Now, apparently this is or was standard among studio executives, which may explain why so many shows back then were produced at such high cost that had such low chances of survival. Now, of course, this was all years ago before the networks figured out that by applying the proven techniques of market and audience research, they never had to put on a flop again. Well, anyway, we'll never know if that girl would have somehow worked and been a hit, but we'll also never know if it would have been a giant flop. We have that in common with the Warner Brothers Discovery Studio, in fact. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will humiliate ourselves. For The Ankler, this is Rob Long with Martini Shot.